and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 10th of February with me, Ian Welsh. A couple of weeks ago, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with Aaron Pack, the co-founder and CEO of startup food tech business Win-Win Food Labs. Win-Win has developed the first ever cocoa-free chocolate and they talk about how it has been developed and the potential for the product. And earlier this week, I caught up with my colleague Katie Ball to find out how the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event in New York this June is shaping up. That's all to come. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news. It's been hard to avoid the controversy, particularly in the UK, over the enormous profits being made by the energy sector giants, while bills for domestic and business customers have reached unprecedented levels. There is unlikely, therefore, to be much sympathy for the directors of oil major Shell, who have been personally cited in a court action by legal activists Client Earth over the company's climate strategy. Client Earth is suing the 11 directors on the basis that Shell's climate strategy is inadequate to meet necessary low-carbon targets and that the company is at financial risk as the global economy transfers to renewable sources of energy. The activists are supported by a number of large pension funds and institutional investors. They argue that any further investment in oil and gas projects is a waste of shareholder funds as it will lead inevitably to stranded assets as Shell's customers require carbon-free energy sources in the future. The International Energy Agency said in 2021 that developing new oil or gas projects was incompatible with net zero emissions by 2050. Shell's most recent annual profits ran to $40 billion, a record for the company. A new report into plastic recycling rates from the Mindaroo Foundation accuses the fossil fuel sector of continuing to ramp up virgin plastic polymer production, despite the public attention on the harm caused by plastic pollution, particularly in the oceans. The Plastic Waste Makers Index says that between 2019 and 2021, there was 15 times more single-use plastic produced than recycled plastic. 6 million tonnes of single-use plastic was produced in the period, with a further 15 million tonnes likely by 2027. The oil sector has been widely accused of focusing attention on plastics and petrochemical sector to protect revenues as the global economy switches to low-carbon energy. The research estimates that only 9% of global plastic is currently recycled and 10 million tonnes every year enters the world's oceans. Recycling rates are improving in developing economies where there is greater public demand, but the problem is particularly acute in the developing world where there is little waste collection and recycling infrastructure. Mindaroo points out that the root cause of the problem is that it remains cheaper to produce virgin plastic than to collect, sort, clean and recycle used plastics. WWF has launched a new biodiversity risk filter that allows, at a company level, for assessment of risks and prioritising of actions to enhance resilience. The new tool will complement WWF's existing water risk filter and also allow investors to assess risk on a portfolio basis. The Biodiversity Risk Filter tool covers broad aspects of biodiversity such as impacts in freshwater, marine, forest and other environments and the filters are designed to help companies answer questions around regional risks and also from specific business activities or investments. They align with the requirements of the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures and the Science-Based Targets for Nature Initiatives and the tools are accessed via a free-to-use online platform. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business and climate action and scope 3 emissions. And do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. On the 21st and 22nd of June, Innovation Forum will be in New York City for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles USA conference. To find out more, earlier this week I caught up with conference director Katie Ball. Welcome back to the podcast, Katie. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for having me back. So we're going to talk about the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event in New York on the 21st and 22nd of June. Who's this event for and what's the event format? 
So this conference is for anyone along the apparel and textile supply chain or who has any general interest in sustainable apparel. We already have some senior representatives from brands, NGOs, suppliers, and other stakeholders signed up to attend. And the event format, we're excited that the event this year will be fully in person and a combination of main stage plenaries and breakout sessions. All of these sessions are panel-based and we ban corporate PowerPoint presentations so that everyone's focus is on in-depth and engaging conversations. As for all Innovation Forum events, it's a discussion led from the off. Katie, as you've been thinking about the event and bringing it together, what are the issues emerging that we're going to be talking about at the conference? I've had a lot of conversations with experts in the area who have had differing opinions on the most practical steps for brands to take to make the transformation to more sustainable and ethical decisions within their organizations. While everyone wants to make changes, many aren't sure how or what those steps look like. And a lot of these professionals have highlighted the importance of net zero strategies, mitigating waste and adopting circular designs, but have struggled with creating data-backed strategies and projections that garner support from their executives and stakeholders. So due to this feedback, our sessions are going to highlight the complexity and importance of a specific topic, but also give attendees practical examples of short-term and long-term solutions that can be taken back to their organization. Obviously, the conference is still evolving. What new sessions have been added to the agenda recently? Circularity has been one of the most popular themes on the agenda, and everyone seems to be somewhere on their journey to more circular products. And having the right data is a vital step in creating a viable circularity strategy. So we've added a session titled How Traceability Can Set the Stage for Truly Circular Systems that will dive into the importance of data from every point in your supply chain and the benefit that will bring to your organization when developing new strategies for a circular product. We've also added a state of apparel content series in the lead up to the Amsterdam conference in April and New York conference in June. Last month, we sat down with Tiffany Rogers from the Fair Labor Association and focused on living wage. And coming up towards the end of this month, we'll be hosting an open invitation webinar focused on how apparel brands can measure their biodiversity impacts for a nature positive future. Great, as that's coming up, you can sign up for that on the Innovation Forum website right now. Any new panelists or speakers that have come on board recently? We've had some really fantastic new speakers sign on over the last few weeks, some of whom include Pamela Fierce-Walsh, the VP of Traceability at PVH, Laurie Rando, the Senior Director of Sustainable Products and Human Rights at Macy's, Franklin Hawley, the Director of Sustainable Fashion at Conservation International, and Laura Whitman, the Vice President of Responsible Leadership and Global Compliance at New Balance. Of course, there are a lot of other really great speakers that you can see under our speakers tab on the conference page. All right, Katie, how can our listeners get involved? We do have a discount running now on tickets to the end of Friday, February 10th to save $500 on tickets. But we're also offering an extended discount for podcast listeners through Wednesday, February 15th. So you'll just drop the word podcast into the box at checkout to receive that discount. You can also reach out to me directly. My email is catie.ball at innovationforum.co.uk to register for group group, ticket bookings, sponsorship, and any other inquiries. It's worth saying there are still plenty of sponsorship opportunities available if you want to get more closely involved in the event. And as Katie says, now's a great time to get your tickets. $500 discount for podcast listeners. Use the code podcast in the discount box at the checkout. And that runs through to 15th of February next week. Katie, thanks very much. Thanks so much, Ian. 
We've covered the cocoa sector extensively in the past and the real challenges in establishing long-term sustainable supply chains that provide both viable farmer income and long-term supply stability. So what alternatives to cocoa are there out there? A couple of weeks ago, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with Arun Pak, co-founder and CEO of Win Win Food Labs, a London-based startup that has developed and brought to market the world's first cocoa-free chocolate. To start with, could you just give some background to Win Win Food and its cocoa-free chocolate? Win Win Food Labs, you know, who are we? We call ourselves a food tech company and we're using the power of fermentation to create alternatives for unsustainable, unethical ingredients out there. So what do I exactly mean by that? You know, they're ingredients that historically may incur quite a lot of deforestation. They grow along the equator. They have a lot of water use and or they have a lot of dubious labor practices. And for instance, our first project is going to be cocoa-free chocolate. So what that means is that we're creating a much more sustainable alternative to chocolate that uses more local ingredients such as legumes, cereals, and that have much less carbon footprint associated with it. What are the main ingredients that are going into your chocolate and undergoing that fermentation process? I guess if we take a step back, we actually follow a really similar process to, say, how chocolate is made today. So for instance, they have the cocoa pod, the farmers break it apart, inside there are seeds, and then they ferment that on the forest floor. And after that, it's roasted, it's conched, it's melange. You have sugars and fats, all the delicious things in the world that we like are added to the mixture. And then you get the chocolate bars that we pretty much consume almost every day, at least I do. So we kind of took that entire process and we said, hey, we can take those principles, but just shift it in a slightly different way. So instead of using industrial mass-produced cocoa, we decided to use different ingredients as our base. For instance, cereals and legumes. And what we do is we follow then a very similar process. We use different microbes, but we ferment them, we roast them, we conch them. We follow a very similar process to chocolate. And that's how we get products that are really similar. And we can pop our chocolate mass, in essence, directly into existing chocolate manufacturing equipment. And anyone out there can actually manufacture it as well. So we've done that on purpose so that we are scalable and we can be the most sustainable company out there in terms of cocoa-free chocolate, at least. In terms of those different ingredients that you might be using, do they have different impacts as well in terms of health? There are a couple things. Because we ferment them, we have a very similar antioxidant profile to chocolate. But two key areas where we do differ are we don't have any caffeine in our chocolate and we also don't have any theobromine. That's why dogs actually can't eat chocolate. You know, we like to say, hey, you can actually share it with some of your best friends, your dog friends. And the other flip side is because we don't use any palm oil or cocoa butter, we use a different fat substitute. We have less saturated fat as well. And so we're also working on reducing our sugar content for the future. You know, the thing about chocolate is that fat and sugars are delicious and they should be a part of your chocolate, but maybe not part of your daily diet entirely, but definitely a portion of it. Agreed. And you say that you're trying to be very scalable. So do you see the companies and the chocolate, the product as kind of a niche for ethical consumers or perhaps it's becoming a larger part of the chocolate industry in the future? Our aim as a company is actually that we are the impetus for mass change across the industry. We've seen action. It's really slow to come by, you know, that change. You know, Harkin Engel Protocol was signed, what, 20 plus years ago? But yet we're still talking about the same issues today. We believe that niche customer will begin that change, but 
our product will be in the industrial, the mass market, because that is the main driver of a lot of the issues that we have today. But we do definitely believe that our ethical consumer, our vegans, our vegetarians have been typical trendsetters, right? But then we are seeing, seeing those trends really filter down to the mass market now. In theory, if the trend of cocoa-free or extending to coffee bean-free coffee, for instance, yeah. to stretch it, if this did become a big part of the mass market, what happens to the farmers that farm the cocoa? So that's a great question. And that's something we're looking to partner up with various organizations to try and seek an answer to. We need to break this system of how we're consuming chocolate. The way we're consuming mass market chocolate, it's not sustainable in its current form. And we need to break that cycle. We're hoping that by creating an alternative to those types of chocolates, perhaps the price of cocoa will increase. And that makes the farmers more able to invest in their farms, seek more sustainable methods of growing, actually afford to send their kids to school. Like, this is the type of cycle we're looking to break. And the other thing I'd like to mention is we're not anti-chocolate. Actually, there are amazing chocolates out there. A lot of companies that are doing the right thing. But to make that the industry standard, now that's tough. When you see demand growing 6% year on year, you really have to think, you know, how are we going to meet that demand? The way we're currently producing now, it's unsustainable. Climate change also makes it so that we can't produce the way we're doing it now. So these are all questions that we really kind of need to come up with really creative solutions to. Our way of addressing that question is, hey, can we create something that tastes just as delicious, that has a lower impact on human labor, on the environment, and still addresses a lot of those issues? So catalyzing a change in the system whilst also presenting a tangible alternative. Yeah. Are you seeing mainstream chocolate companies adopting the same kind of processes or the same approach? Our aim is that mainstream chocolate companies like Nestle or Mondelez, I really want them to start thinking differently, right? The answer for them has always been more chocolate, maybe better chocolate. Are we seeing that? I'm not so sure. It's really up to them to start thinking differently, I think. However, that being said, what we aim to offer as the cocoa-free chocolate alternative, it's meant to slot in directly into what machinery, what chocolates, what products they already have. So our answer is, hey, there is an alternative out there. We don't need to continue pursuing such extractive practices. Do you supply to companies as well as consumers? At this time, we are gearing up for that. We have been much more focused on getting our consumer brand up and ready and our consumer products. We did two limited edition launches last year. We sold out within 24 hours. So I'm really super excited to <laughs> talk about that. This year, we'll be doing much more focus on the consumer products. And then later this year, we'll be focused on scaling up so that we can actually meet B2B demand. So I wanted to ask a bit about fermentation because there's a fair amount of buzz around it and different forms of it at the moment. I just wanted to ask why we're seeing that and do you have a sense of its pervasiveness or growth potential? Fermentation has been around for millennium, right? It's the reason why a lot of our foods taste so amazing. So cheese, beer, wine, bread, humans have co-opted fermentation and we love it. It's delicious. I'm Korean American. So like I've grown up around kimchi my entire life. I would not be here today if it were not for fermented foods. The interesting thing is that the food tech world especially has now decided, hey, fermentation can actually solve a lot of our problems. 
it makes foods more delicious, more nutritious, but there are different types of fermentation, right? You have your more traditional types of fermentation, which are all the things that I've mentioned. Then you have your precision fermentation, which uses bioreactors and genetically modified organisms to create a lot of compounds or delicious things as well. I think the potential for fermentation is absolutely exponential. The only challenges that you'd have with precision fermentation is whether or not you can scale as quickly as we need to. Pharmaceutical industry has been using precision fermentation for a very, very long time. If they can do it, I believe food can also do it. However, there is a global shortage, so we do have to be mindful of that. This is why we as a company at WinWin have decided not to go the precision fermentation route. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for coming on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you. Awesome. Thanks, B. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And do look out for a new regenerative agricultural briefing just published. Don't forget to register now for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event in New York in June to take advantage of the $500 discount on passes. It's due to expire on Friday the 10th of February, but use the discount code PODCAST and you can take advantage of the offer until 15th of February next week. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next time, goodbye.